thank you so much, Kevin, for, for joining me today. Very excited to, to chat about your journey, Ampere's journey, sort of mission and vision of what it's building, what it has built so far. Um, a lot of interesting things happening in, in aerospace and in, you know, design and just transfer of energy, not only for, for our homes and our automobiles, but, you know, also flights, airplane, like how do we get this sector that is more and more being used to ship around the world, fly people around. Like it's such a massive, I think, industry that we, we don't think about electrifying quite as much because we're like, how is it even possible? Really, really happy to dive in. But before we do talk talk about Ampere, talk a little bit about your journey, Kevin, like what your career arc was like, what, what was your steps to get toward co-founding Ampere and being the CEO? Yeah, well, uh, Grant, thanks for having me. And you bring up some good points about this, uh, what the industry needs and kind of what the world needs at this point in time. So about my journey, you know, I, as a kid, I, I grew up in in Utah in a ski town just outside of Salt Lake. And, you know, my core, like, you know, I fell in love with looking up at the starry nights and going on hikes and fresh air and blue skies and really found myself at home in nature. Um, it's still very much part of who I am. And um, I think as as a, as a kid, when I when I found my myself out there, I also uh, this idea of exploring, this idea of how do we access you know the stars above? How do we get there? What are these things flying overhead? How do you become an astronaut? You know, questions that I think a lot of kids ask themselves. Um, which of course led to you know the model rockets and all that kind of stuff, and this deep fascination with how uh, how we live in the world around us and how what we build can. Uh, can, can affect it and and how we can travel within it and ultimately led me to getting my mechanical engineering degree from Caltech. So really rigorous foundational education where I, I, I always like to think I, I pulled two two things out of my four years there. Number one is a great first principles foundation of knowledge and approach to hard problems. Uh, the second is an immense amount of humility. The that the Caltech is full of really bright people, all of them that seemed so so much smarter than I ever was. And what I loved is that every every person I would come across was like expert in something. And and maybe it was mainstream, maybe it was obscure. And if if I didn't, if I wasn't talking to the the world leading expert in whatever I was interested in at that moment, they probably knew who that person was. So you're always like one or two degrees out from like from world renowned, which was really unique for me, right? Coming from from a place in Utah where that wasn't necessarily the case, uh, having having in my education kind of these formative years be in a place where people dreamed of changes that happened over the course of half centuries, centuries, where Nobel Prize winners were literally walking the sidewalks. I mean, I, I sat down for meals and had conversations with Stephen Hawking, like these kinds of experiences, the kind of experiences that not only teach you, you know, the technical knowledge that you might gain in, in, in school, but, but really teach you that you can have a place in the world and do something meaningful with that place. With a, with a lot of gratitude, I, um, I received some uh, financial aid in college to help me to help me pay for school. And I sat down for lunch one time with uh, this really generous, uh, this generous guy who had funded my my freshman year. And I asked him, I was like, you don't know me. Like, I don't know you. Why are you putting yeah. this money up yeah. to help a, a, a kid go to school? And, um, you know, a little bit of a pessimist he was. Uh, he, he shared with me, he's like, you know what, Kevin? 
this is like 2005 timeframe. Uh, he's like, Kevin, I think that we have, like humanity has less than 50 years left before we annihilate ourselves or destroy the planet or something. And I'm getting huh. old and there's nothing I can do about it. Maybe if I help some smart mm-hmm. chumps like you actually, you know, get get into the right spots, maybe you can do something about it. And little in, interactions like that, people put, I mean, that was pretty weighty for like an 18-year-old. Little, little experiences and interactions like that have always pressed me to to keep my vision bigger than just the the detail of you know what am i doing today but think about the big picture of what kind of impact what kind of global uh you know even solar system universal scale impact is possible and and to make sure that to make sure that we're not and specifically for me, that I'm not squandering my time, uh, this precious little time that we have here on Earth. So that led me to, um, you know, a good engineering degree, research in robotics uh, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, which wow. is like just fascinating. And, and like space robots is a pretty cool thing to work on. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and I I got really lucky, had some good mentors, and ended up after graduation uh, when you know a lot of kids are trying to decide. Go go and stay in academia. Go get a PhD in robotics or something. I ended up taking a cool job in aerospace. Always loved things that flew. Always loved airplanes. Always loved uh, space. And um, and I I got into again uh, pretty lucky. I, I got into probably the coolest part of Northrop Grumman, which was effectively their Skunk Works doing stealth technology research and development. So this is, and I remember one of the one of the senior leaders there. I was asking him like, how do I describe to my family what we do here? Because so much of it was secret. We couldn't say the details. Uh, he was like, you know, the he quoted this uh, sci-fi author. It's a beautiful quote that I love. Uh, it's Arthur C. Clarke said this is one of his laws of technology that any technology that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Indistinguishable from magic. And and that's what we're doing is uh, is you know and what is magic and in, in practice it's sleight of hands uh, sparks smoke and mirrors and uh, and a lot of skill so you know there's a way to implement magic in the real world um, but this this idea that I could be working on technology that's just so far out there so so this this was great and it was a right it was an amazing place to start a career right because as a as a smart engineer, I, I got a ton of responsibility to to be creative, to start leading research and development projects, to kind of build up some teams, to motivate, to understand all the stakeholders and the funding and schedules and reporting and all of the factors that reality brings into engineering projects that are so much beyond, again, just the, you know, the cogs in a gear. And it gave me this deep appreciation for the, the full life cycle process. Uh, of of systems of teams of organizations of products and and laid a pretty uh, amazing foundation in those early years after I, I realized that stealth technology as magical as it was was super niche and not the place yeah. I wanted to spend my sure. whole life and and so I moved into a different portion of north of Grumman to work on space systems so like satellites uh, we worked on a, a weather observing satellite so microwave sounder uh, that uh, that looks down on the, the layers of the atmosphere and it helps um, it helps us understand kind of what's going on in the atmosphere all the time the big the big uh, kind of rallying cry and mission for that 
was about uh, increasing the the level of confidence that we have when projecting hurricanes, so that instead of only having a, a confidence track a few days, like mm. or, or a day or two yeah. out, you're now getting three to five days, uh, maybe more horizon on on knowing where things go. So it's like using technology, aerospace technology, in order to impact the world in a positive way. And uh, but what I'll say is. Uh, you know, after seven years of working in a big company, even though I was getting, you know, a lot of responsibility and I was having a great time and good people, meaningful work, there was still something, something kind of missing mm. for me. Something I, I felt that I needed to do something bigger. Maybe it was the the echoes of that lunch with uh, with the gentleman who funded my freshman year, reminding me that I really did need to shoot shoot for the moon. I needed to do something bigger with with my time. And I didn't know what that was. I really, I felt a little lost, quite a bit lost. And um, like anybody who's a little way into their career feeling lost, I decided I was going to go to business school. And uh, and so that was a, a like, okay, I need a holding pattern of some sort. But this, this is 2015. When I when I decided that, okay, I'm going to go this path, it was like the world was conspiring for me to do something different, something bigger. It was each conversation I have was driving me in this kind of entrepreneurial direction, though I, I didn't really know what would come of it. Um, sure. I remember an, an event that I went to with this, um, this uh, it, was, it was back at Caltech. Uh, it was a, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And one of my mentors, mentors, who, who I was there with, uh, was the first time I met him. Uh, his name's Dan Golden. And Dan used to run NASA. Uh, he's the reason we had the, uh, the, the space station. He has a huge amount of vision. Uh, he truly is visionary for, the, for, for aerospace and technology. And I remember my conversation with him where he lit up when he was talking about the companies that he was building and this entrepreneurial mm. stuff. And, and, and that was news to me. Um, and then I remember when I was visiting some business schools out in Boston, I coincided with a aerospace entrepreneurship panel where, um, mm. where I heard about all these innovative things happening. And again, I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing the business school thing. And then I sat almost, I was like two rows in the flight back to LA, sat next to the VP of special projects from one of these companies who had given that talk on that panel. And I'm sitting wow. chatting with him about like, hey, I'm trying to figure out my life and what am I going to do? And he uh, and he shared with me, he's like, look, if you, um, if you uh, have an idea uh, and if it's the right time for that idea, then do it now because two years from now, it won't be the right idea. But mm -hmm. if you don't mm -hmm. know what company you want to start, then you know, going to a good business school is a great way to do it. And I was like, thank goodness I don't have a good idea. I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and, then, and then no joke, less than two weeks later, one of my old colleagues, this brilliant engineer out of Stanford, like genius level engineer, his name's Corey. Corey calls me up and he's like, Kevin, I got an idea. And he sits me down at Love lunch and he says, Love those calls. I know, I know. Man, they're life-changing calls. When smart people, He's, when really smart people say, I have an idea, yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's always good. I mean, <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, and so he sat me down and he's like, Kevin, I want us to change aviation. I want to build a vertical takeoff and landing, supersonic, fully electric jet. And I want you to help to build this company with me. <laughs> I mean, just like, that is, that is crazy. That is huge. That is audacious and ambitious. That is the biggest rock you could possibly move, right? And I was like, well, that sounds 
that sounds impossible. Mm-hmm. But knowing Corey, it was like there's something, there's something incredible here. And so he and he he was patient with me. And as as I unpacked that statement, vertical takeoff and landing, supersonic, fully electric jets, we uncovered some really core truths about the trends that we were anticipating in aviation. Again, this is this is 2015, right? This is eight mm-hmm. years ago. And it was that electrification technology, the EV technology that, you know, Tesla Roadsters and, and uh, you know, I, I, I'll have to get my, my dates straight, but call it the Model S might have been rolling out at that time. Prius is driving around everywhere, probably changing lanes too slowly. Like you, you've got EVs on the ground and they're starting to be there. And this question of like, what does it mean in aviation? And and as we unpack this, it was like, well, you can do this vertical takeoff and landing thing that's been so hard in the future. Fly to and from anywhere you wanted to go. You could do this efficient propulsion, airframe integration, new novel concepts for vehicles that were never possible, like wild opportunity. But then also, you're able to decrease the carbon impact of aviation, mm-hmm. decrease the direct pollution from aviation, eliminate things like leaded fuels. Aviation still burns leaded fuel for general aviation, smaller airplanes. You've got the particulate matter and the NOx and all these other things. You've got the noise burden. And then you have the economics of aviation, that when you switch over to an electrified solution, just get turned upside down. And undo all of these trends of an atrophying industry that's losing service to communities all over the world. As you put in new technology, you now are able to make it more economical to fly these routes. You provide a new service, more frequent service to communities that have lost it recently or never had it before. And then so like all of these pieces started to, like as you're peeling the layers of the vision into the, the prag, pragmatic and compelling impact of, of the opportunity, like that, that has, I mean, really turned into the story of these last eight years as we founded in 2016 and then have been building Ampere on this mission to decarbonize aviation, increase accessibility, and, uh, and, and really build what I think is going to drive the next hundred years of flight. So when somebody... No, now I ask you, and you can divulge what you're working on, which is awesome, right? It's like, how do you explain Ampere to people, right, who are not maybe in the weeds, you know, in the sector, you're just sort of, you know, out and about at sort of a, an event or, or like a dinner party or something, and, and, and somebody asks you what Ampere is, like, how do you give them like, a, how do you condense it down in, into a conversation piece where people can, just everyday people can sort of understand? You, let's say, let's say you walk up to me at a bar and you say, hey, tell me, tell me about Ampere. I'm going to say, have you ever heard of a Toyota Prius? Yes. We make Toyota Prius-like systems, hybrid electrics, but for airplanes. These systems cut fuel burn by 50 to 70%, better for the environment, it's better economics, and it's going to touch a whole lot of lives in a lot of positive ways. When we talk about like the past, let's say, eight years or so, you, you had mentioned, right? Like, What have been sort of the the advancements just in that let's say almost nearly a decade, right? Like is Ampere creating new planes? Are they putting technology into older planes and then basically reviving their sort of life and lifespan into old planes? Like what is the, where are we at like in the Ampere lifespan of, of what it's working on the last sort of eight years and what is graduated maybe to work on now? Totally. Um, Man, a lot happens in eight years. It's, it's (laughs) phenomenal. Uh, I mean, the world is, 
the world and our company has changed so much. The, you know, when we started, we were just those, those crazy punk kids who uh, wanted to start an airplane company, right? <laughs> like, it was like, we were, the people called us crazy. Like, it was insane. I remember every, everyone I talked to was like, are you sure you want to be doing this? When you have deep conviction around something and everyone else is calling you crazy, that's maybe when you're onto something. Yep, um, exactly. And, and in, in this case, you know, so eight years ago, we started with that, that vision of uh, vertical takeoff and landing supersonic fully electric jets. When you say vertical takeoff, that means the plane doesn't need sort of a typical runway. It sort That's of right. just hovers off the ground, let's say, like back, like a back to the future hoverboard, right? It just sits there, goes up, and then it can sort of take off. Almost the runway is done in air rather than on the ground. That's right. It's, it's like a helicopter, right? You take take off in that way. And, and the, the reality is that around the time and over the last, you know, better part of a decade, a lot of other companies have popped up trying to do new designed planes to do exactly this. There's some mm -hmm. really, um, in the industry, well-known ones who, who are out there and making pretty good progress on, on that, side, that style of a plane. Specific to our strategy at Ampere, though, we realized that you know, when we started, there was no supply chain. There were no, there were no mm -hmm. incumbents. There were no batteries made for aviation. There were no motors or inverters that were specific to aviation. We realized that what we really needed to do was we needed to focus on the heart of the problem. And rather than starting by building a new airplane, what we really needed to do was to build the foundation of technology that could fit into any airplane and that ultimately would enable all airplanes. And so you do that not by designing one unique clean sheet is what I would call it, like a design from scratch airplane which is an immense undertaking and serves only one portion of a market. Uh, instead, it's like a picks and shovels approach. I'm, I'm, we're, we're, we're building the propulsion systems initially and integrating them into planes, both those planes that already are flying, already are in, in operation with fleets around the world, but then those same systems that we're building fit nicely into the new airplanes that are getting designed. We've got customers who do vertical takeoff and landing. Uh, we've got customers who are doing um, higher speed, um, higher speed conventional planes, and and also your kind of short haul cargo style style uh, turboprops. And so what we've done over the years, I mean, just some current stats. So we went from from nothing but a but a dream to we've now we now have the world's largest fleet of hybrid electric planes. We have wow. flown that fleet all around the world, deploying in pilot projects with airlines. We've flown over twenty five thousand miles. So far, uh, we deployed an island hopped in Hawaii. We were out in the Orkney Islands, out in Scotland. We flew across England. We've cross-countryed uh, out uh, across the United States in order to be featured at the Oshkosh Air Show. Last <laughs> summer, we did this amazing trek up uh, through, the, through the remote tundra of Canada and up into Alaska. It was 3,400 miles of flights wow. um, to get from Southern California up there, like living in the harsh realities of of the world and and deploying these new technologies in places that people probably never thought they could go and showing that a lot of the misconceptions that people would normally come in with around electric vehicles in aviation like oh, the batteries are really really heavy so like you can't carry anybody or you can't fly very far right. in december of 2023 we flew a mission with one of our hybrid planes where we flew for 12 hours straight. 
wow. that was 1,400 miles traveled in a single hop. If that's not sufficient range, I really don't know what is because nobody wants to stay in a small plane for that long. And so <laughs> the the, rea the reality is like it is upon us to both build the technology, but then also educate the world about what is real, what is not, what they can expect, when they can expect it, and, and ultimately to deliver on all these promises for a sustainable future for aviation. You mentioned some of the some of the sort of statistics the, the amp air technology can lower fuel by 90%, maintenance by 50%, noise by 60%. We're sort of in this, you know, the infancy, let's say, of electrifying aerospace in a way, right? We're still kind of figuring out a bunch of stuff. But like you said, the last 10 years, I mean, a miracle of things have, have happened, right? I guess, what are the what are the, the issues and hurdles now that, that amp air is trying to figure out? Like, what are the it seems like you have the foundation sort of built. You have sort of case studies in the air. You're, you're, you're flying 12 hours. You, you have a lot of the foundational stuff figured out, it sounds like. What are, I guess, the struggles and hurdles now that you face? We've made a lot of good strategic decisions to reduce the risk on a lot of the factors. Uh, for example, some of the ones you mentioned. So I'll start with the things that could have been hard problems for us, but that we've resolved. And then I'll talk a bit about kind of the ones that remain in front of us. So by choosing to go hybrid electric, again, kind of like a Toyota Prius, it means that uh, we are, uh, we're, we have a relatively small battery. We're able to maintain all of the useful payload of the aircraft. We're able to maintain all of the range of the aircraft. So where battery weight was an immense challenge and is for a fully electric aviation, for hybrid electric, current technology is sufficient. Also, when we do these deployments and we're flying around uh, around the world, one of the big bottlenecks for even even still ground electric vehicles is is electric vehicle chargers. You know, I flew into Chicago last summer. Uh, I was visiting a company out there and. I rented a, an electric vehicle. And Chicago has plenty of chargers, no issues. But this this company was outside of Chicago by just under 100 miles. And 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 when I drove out to this more more rural area, there wasn't a charger. There wasn't a charger within 45 minutes of where I was. Right. right. Even today. And so the the reality is that though many of us who live in bigger cities Maybe, uh, maybe taking for granted EV charging infrastructure, most of the world has none. And when you actually look at even the grid infrastructure to support those EV chargers, it still needs to be improved and built up and the, ener and the, and the energy availability at those locations. And so when you, when you look at electrifying aviation, the lack of charging infrastructure at airports like, is, is a huge bottleneck and going to hold back an industry that relies upon them. Now, we strategically chose to go with a Prius-like hybrid electric. Why did the Priuses, why did hybrid electric outsell plug-in vehicles for over 20 years, over two decades of dominating an industry is because of factors like this. Our planes yeah. don't have to plug in. They power share. They can land anywhere you want them to go. And so if you're flying to an airport where there isn't going to be a plug, well, then you, you, you flip the switch, you recharge in flight, and then you land wherever you needed to go. So truly, it is plug-in optional. Now, one of our strategies is to build up the charging infrastructure in and around those 
those airports where this market is building. And so we plan on rolling out charging infrastructure so that it's available because, of course, that's the most energy optimized and environmentally friendly uh, method. But it's done as a as an added feature, not as a prerequisite that would hold back adoption of the vehicles, right? And this is a very important distinction um, that otherwise is a, is an immense challenge for the industry that we have we've overcome through our strategic approach. On your question on the things that still remain ahead that are pretty challenging for us right, and for the industry as a whole, you know, this is these are the barnstorming days of aviation, the early days where people are still trying to figure stuff out. And and that's very much true um, as we bring technology into commercialization. A lot of our supply chain is coming out of automotive heritage, like battery right. cells right. or inverters or motors. And, and those companies that have started in the last eight years to do specialty aviation batteries, specialty aviation motors are relatively young too, right? So we're building an industry base, an industry base that's either transitioning from one one industry over into another, from automotive over into aviation. And we're bridging that gap so that they become familiar with aviation, the regulatory structures, the the production quantities, the, the requirements that sit on that and then we're 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 playing um we're we're translating also with with the aviation who doesn't know or or work with traditionally with with EV system so the regulatory structures and the people within the the FAA or EASA in Europe or or other regulatory bodies we're working with them and everybody's learning along the way. How do you make a safe electrified plane? How do you prove that it's safe? How do you handle the training of maintainers? Uh, how, do you, how do you answer all these questions? That is a, a challenge that uh, collectively uh, we're, we're working through and ultimately is, um, is the, one of the highest priorities for us as a company is getting through that learning, building up that supply chain, that production base, uh, so that ultimately we can build and support um, these really phenomenal products in a uh, in an industry where safety is absolutely critical and can't be taken for granted. I got a couple more questions here. One would just be around you know being a CEO and becoming an entrepreneur when your journey took you there, right? But it, it certainly wasn't early. It, it wasn't a path that you think you you thought you were going to go on. How has that journey been like being a CEO? I guess what are some of some advice you would give you know another person perhaps. You know, thinking about entrepreneurship, thinking about you know starting something interesting that maybe they they dreamed for for a while, and and sort of they they need that that encouragement that that you once had. You know, talking to to individuals that sort of inspired you. I guess what are some of the advice you would give to aspiring founders? So thinking about this, I distill it down into a few core principles and a few good habits. The core principles come down to like how do I even pick the work that I do? Like where do I spend my time and why? Yeah. And this is this has been this has been true for me for the last I don't know twenty years or so. I uh, there there's three key factors that I measure things against. It's meaningful, challenging, visible. Meaningful is about if you're gonna be here, you might as well do something great. Like do something that matters. Do something that's impactful. If it's not meaningful, then really, why are you doing it? Like again, we all have a short amount of time. Let's spend it right challenging because we're all really smart in something. And if you're not challenging, that means you're not growing. 
you're not learning, but then you're also not maximizing the output. So like, make sure that you're already always feeling challenged, always feeling a little stupid, because then you're pushing yourself just beyond where your previous limits were and you're growing. And I think that's the way to maximize the meaningful output. And then visible, so meaning to, meaningful, challenging, visible. Visible is about a snowball, a snowball growing as you roll down this hill of life and you 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 do one one action and you do something that people see that they care about that's that that they that they're inspired by it builds additional opportunities so if you and and that's i think that that's similarly a way to maximize the output so meaningful challenging visible if you're if you're an entrepreneur you're trying to decide what to do find something that you think is absolutely what the world needs that you have the deepest conviction that it's not just like oh this could be cool but like in the hardest days this is going to get me out of bed because those hard days are going to come probably the worst days are going to happen and you need to know why you're in it because if you're not in it for the right reasons it's going to be really hard or or maybe impossible to get through the worst times so meaningful challenging visible the next thing is it comes down to a a whole keeping serving of humility it's mm. when you are navigating through the darkness and there's there's no pathway for you you don't know what's next you have to recognize that it's an op- it's a learning opportunity that you're not going to get everything right you have to keep your head up and you have to with humility think like work through the path that that's ahead and part of humility for me has been realizing that i am and i'm an orienteer not a map maker now, I, I mentioned I, I, I grew up in Utah and do a lot of backpacking and stuff. And, and oftentimes, it would be nice to walk around with a map and say, hey, let's go from this ridge to that ridge. But in life, you really don't have a map. I used to try to draw maps of where my life should go next. But I realized that the reality is those maps will always be wrong. And it's okay to think through what that map might look like, but it's critical to be an orienteer. And orienteering is about holding a compass, looking in a direction, deciding this is where I want to go, setting bounds for how long you're going to go in that direction, and then lifting your head up, evaluating where you are, making a change, and moving in the next direction. And this enables you to race fast, singular, focused, get things done but then also adjust as you and the world around you changes. And so this idea of having the humility to not try to know everything, not try to know the whole path, but to be an orienteer has has really served me, served me really well. And then the the last one that I'll mention here is is the world is built with people and people are amazing. And so while while an individual can be phenomenal, and really capable, like the richness of life is is when you're surrounding yourself with just really good people who share a common mission and share common values. And and that is uh, probably the most enjoyable thing out of building a company like Amp Air, meeting people like you, Grant, is and just the, the whole disruptors for good. Like, like it is about surrounding yourself, entrenching yourself in this ecosystem of doers, of dreamers, of people who are relentlessly and urgently pushing toward doing something great for the world. And that's, um, I mean, and, and so it, it makes the, the isolated moments of being an entrepreneur less isolating. And it makes you feel like you're part of a, a greater purpose and team who's here to do those positive things together. So that um, uh, from like a psychology and mental health standpoint, I think is super important as an entrepreneur. Love it, man. Thank you. That was, uh, that was amazing. That was super helpful. The last question I'll end on here is, you know, when you and, and 
and Corey and, and sort of the team are are sitting around like thinking about the next three to five years, thinking about the goals and successes you want to achieve. I guess what do, what are those what are those goals and successes? What are the topics that come up um, in, in those conversations? And what does that three to five year you know goal and journey uh, look like? What do you what do you you and the team want to achieve? Yeah, the next three to five years is us going from it works when we're using it to it works when our customers are using it. And that that is a big, important transition that you only get to do once. You don't, mm, like, first yeah. impressions matter. And we are, we are in the process of bringing the world's first electrified aircraft to market. We're likely to be the first in market and people will remember both as it, as it reflects upon Amp Air, but also as it reflects across the industry, will remember how we did. They will remember if it was a pain, if it was, if it had maintenance issues and was broken down on the side of the runway all the time, or they'll remember if it was a, a, a magical experience. And, and it's important for us over this next three to five years to make sure that we we deliver a, a great product with a great experience that that reflects well on uh, on 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 the future of the industry because um, this is these are the years of first impressions uh, for for us into the world and it's and it's really important that we do it right that we do it with integrity whether we do it with great technology, we do it with with the humility and the connection to the customer base and all the other stakeholders who are in the ecosystem with us. Amazing, my man. Thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time. I, I know you're busy. Always grateful when when founders and CEOs can take time to to breathe a little bit and tell their journey, right? Tell their story because I think this helps when you have these conversations and other people can understand what it takes, right? It's also a part of this is like education and and understanding the work that needs to be put in and in anything that you do, anything you start, anything you build. So appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck for, for the next decade for you and the team. Hey, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. 